Hi, and welcome to Security Explained. I'm Chris Grayson. I'm Drew Porter. And I'm Logan Lamb. We're coming to you every two weeks with tips and tricks on how to protect yourself and your loved ones out there on the internet and in real life. It's one of the more controversial topics within the information security realm, vulnerability research. It's the practice of pulling software and services apart and finding how they were put together incorrectly. What you do with that research, whether it be submitting to a bug bounty, responsibly disclosing, or selling the information on an exploit broker, can seriously impact individuals and corporations. It's an interesting topic with compelling arguments on most sides, and we're going to dig into the details here today. I think the first thing that we probably want to do here is is frame the, the question of what is vulnerability research? Drew, you want to start us off? Yeah. So vulnerability research is the digging into a piece of software or hardware and finding vulnerabilities uh, within that piece of software or hardware. And the real crux of this, you know, deals around the legality of uh, what you're pulling apart. Do you actually own it? You know, is it a service online? Where does that, you know, line get blurred into the realm of legal versus the realm of illegal? And a lot of people will call this type of work like reverse engineering, right? In the security world, uh, we call it vulnerability research, but reverse engineering is is the same thing. Reverse engineering can be done uh, not just to look for the vulnerabilities in a product, though. Reverse engineering, the difference on a high level is you are actually trying to re- reverse something out, not necessarily to find flaws in it, but to get a deeper understanding of how it works, whether that's because you're building a competing product or something like that, which is different than vulnerability research in my book. I don't know if you two agree, but vulnerability research is involves reverse engineering, but isn't reliant on knowing how everything works. It's reliant on finding as many vulnerabilities in the product as possible. And one of the ways, you know, one, one of the easiest ways we can do this, even if you don't have a large set of technical skills, is you could RTFM, right? You can read the documentation uh, surrounding oh, is that the what product. That, for? <laughs> <laughs> that that is, I, I think it stands for read the freaking manual. I believe. Mm, I think uh, so. PG version. Uh, <laughs> yep. But uh, the documentation around the product itself. This can be both manufacturer supplied documentation, third party documentation, or more importantly, what I find most useful, especially when dealing with products like IoT, uh, ICS, or anything that has some type of embedded radio in it is FCC documentation from that company. And using a combination of those items, both public and private resources, just reading the documentation will tell you quite a bit about that product before you even start pulling it apart. Mm -hmm. The... the I feel like one of the first things that I usually do whenever um, whenever I'm doing vulnerability research, whenever I'm, I'm looking into something is, yeah, like pulling down the manual and then looking into like the instructions on, oh, yeah, here's the, here's the default password. Here's what here's how the thing is set up. Here's it, it looks like the service hasn't actually been fully configured yet. So it's like, OK, cool. Now I know now I know how to how to get things put together. Um, but it is it never I, I remember when I was first uh, first getting started in this industry, I was always surprised at like how good just reading the documentation for whatever I was, um, whatever I was trying to pull apart or understand what would actually work. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. Um, why set off into the wild unknown when we can uh, hear from the creators themselves about how to use the product? Um, and Drew, I, I agree with you on the FCC docs. Um, manuals are fantastic and FCC docs are, they're just magic for detailing how hardware works. So you mentioned reading the, the docs, but uh, I think one other important kind of framing of, of vulnerability research, at least in my mind, is uh, I think kind of related to the definition that I have of, of hacking 
where there's going to be a piece of software or a piece of hardware where it's it's intended to be or do a specific thing, right? And you know, if if the problem of getting software to do what you want it to do was easy, then software engineering would not really exist as as an industry. I guess that that's probably a bit extreme, but like basically, if you could just think like, ah, oh, I need a piece of software that does X Y Z, and then it just comes into existence. Uh, then software engineering would be out of a job. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd be out of a job. You'd be out of a job. We'd all be out of a job. Hey, uh, and but but the the thing is, it's actually really difficult. It's actually really difficult to um to express your intent in 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 code. And I think one of the one of the kind of like analogs that that folks that aren't into software engineering can can think about is if you've ever seen videos where like a parent is talking to their child and, and they're actually pretty funny if you haven't seen them you, you should you should look them up um where the parent is like okay i'm going to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and they tell the child like please tell me what to do and the child will be like oh like 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 put the peanut butter on the bread and then the parent will just like take the jar of peanut butter and put it on top of the bread and be like, is that what you wanted? He's like, no, you have to open the peanut butter first and they take it off the bread and then open the peanut butter. It's like, okay, cool. What do I do now? It's like, and, and the, <laughs> the lack of specificity is what they're kind of like playing at in those videos where it's like, unless, unless you go through the instructions and are very, very explicit about all the details, you're not going to get the person to make a peanut butter, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And it's very similar with software. Like software only does exactly what you tell it to do and nothing more. So if you tell it to do the slightly wrong thing or you tell it, you don't tell it to do the thing in its entirety, it's not actually going to line up with your expectations. And as far as that, as the way that this pertains to vulnerability research in my mind is when I'm doing vulnerability, vulnerability research, I am trying to find the delta between what was intended to be possible and what is actually possible. So the various software or hardware that we work with, there was an initial design, there was initial intent, and then there was implementation. And there's likely a gap between intention and implementation. And that gap is where a lot of vulnerability actually lies. One thing we should also touch on is what are the motivating factors for vulnerability research? And I think there's two big buckets to throw this in. I guess probably probably three so there's intellectual exploration. If you were ever uh, a kid that whenever you see like a new thing, you just had to pull it apart and look at the insides. I know when I was a kid, my dad would bring home like random electronics and I just thought they were the coolest things. And I would just take it all apart and look at the insides and be like, wow, this is so cool. Despite the fact that I completely destroyed the electronics and, and like I didn't get anything, anything else out of it, but it's like intellectual exploration. Like this is, this is the digital equivalent of, of doing something like that. You're not pulling apart. Well, I guess, I guess, you know, you guys do your hardware, hardware research. I, I lack the skills to do that. Um, so I don't, I don't physically pull things apart, but I am effectively pulling apart software. So intellectual exploration is actually absolutely on the table. Um, Monetary gain is absolutely a motivating factor here as well. There's lots of ways that you can um, make money doing vulnerability research. And then I'd, I'd throw a third one in there of kind of um, industry reputation. reputation. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole big culture in the InfoSec industry around doing research and disseminating your research, presenting at conferences, stuff like that. Um, yeah, you know, there's there's pros and cons to it for sure. But at the end of the day, that it's one of the ways that you can kind of demonstrate that like, hey, I know what I'm doing in the industry is conducting research and then demonstrating what you did and sharing that knowledge with the community. So I think I think those are the three buckets that, that I have in my mind. Did I what do y'all think? Did I miss any? Um uh, I agree with all that. I think it's worth pointing out that uh, at least speaking for myself. Uh, many times when I've started a hacking project, I don't really know where it's going to end up. It, mm -hmm. So many projects start out purely as an intellectual exploration, and then they may morph into something else. Yeah, I don't think it has to start as, you know, you're coming into it for monetary gain, right? Yep. It started as intellectual exploration, 
Uh, and then because there are some things that you will find that are really neat, but are not worth anything. Right. Yeah. There's a ton of vulnerabilities like that and products where it's like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's not worth anything. I think I think the baseline of going in there for intellectual gain or intellectual exploration is where a lot of people start. And then they're like, oh, wow, this is a service that a lot of people use and it's totally vulnerable. I can, you know, sell a, a vulnerable, a weaponized exploit against it for a few hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Right. Then your intellectual exploration becomes monetary exploration (laughs) (laughs) monetary exploration i like it monetary excavation that's right as as you spend all the money in your mind before you even receive it Uh, (laughs) (laughs) i i guess thinking back to thinking back to um what has started some of the vulnerability research that that we have worked on together is also just wanting to get together with your friends and and break things and and have some beers and and have a good time. So I I think that was also how a bunch of our cool kind of research came out, Logan. Where yeah, I think the, that should be a fourth way. That, that should be a fourth. Just like yeah. I I want to hang out with the friends and and learn some new stuff. Well, one of the more Kind of controversial parts behind vulnerability research is all related to kind of the ethical position um, that folks take with it. And so, I think y'all are going to have some pretty strong feelings on this, but uh, what, what do you think about the common position of, if you just didn't look, then people wouldn't know? That's 100% BS. One hundred percent. It falls on the same line of you know, if you have nothing to hide, then what do you worry about people searching, right? It's like, oh man, Chris, the, I the think logic this is with it is flawed. Uh, I think this is your example, but it's like, hey, I smell what it smells like a dead body coming from this closet, and we should <laughs> totally not look there. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, this this is something that is regularly touted by uh, parties that are anti-vulnerability research for for whatever reason is that, well, you know, if you didn't actually look, if you didn't actually pull this piece of software apart and discover these vulnerabilities, then nobody would actually know about it. And, um, you know, say say what you will, it will about it. It's it's a position that is held by, by a lot of parties. But Drew, you kind of brought up the that this is in line with, um, you know, that, well, if you have nothing to hide, why don't you let people search? So that, but and and a lot of people also have have that opinion as well. So can you dig in a little bit deeper there and and tell me why is that not uh, not a good position to hold? The position of if you have nothing to hide, then uh, you have nothing to fear, uh, comes down to a, a few flaws, but the biggest one. Um, is well actually one of the biggest ones is that the information that is gleamed today will be used against you in some way tomorrow everyone does everything does something illegal even if they don't know they're doing something illegal uh, if if the law if law enforcement or other groups want to destroy your life they will destroy your life in a matter of seconds because of things that you do of not even knowing that they're illegal, but again, it is a um, it, it is a two prong item. One, privacy should be an explicit right and should have uh, priority over everything. And two, um, everything that is seen today will be used against you tomorrow. Now, there there are other arguments for that that more people you know might find more accepting. But in my book, those are the two big things. And one of those items, you know, things that are found today will be used against you tomorrow is something that a lot of people forget. And even if it's legal today, it doesn't mean it will be legal tomorrow. And it will be remembered that you have that, even if you don't remember it. So uh, that's a little bit of a different approach than what most people would take when it comes to that argument. But that is my approach, uh, just because I've seen what that looks like in the real world. 
Well, let me ask you guys a, a counterpoint then, because, you know, to be clear, I'm fully on the side of like vulnerability research when done responsibly does improve kind of security posture across the board um, through through various means. So so I'm, I'm in that camp. But let's take the instance of I think it was like Eternal Blue was the was the exploit name. I remember there was a vulnerability in like Windows SMB that when the vulnerability got disclosed was immediately weaponized and turned into a botnet. And so folks that that take this position of well if you didn't if you didn't look we wouldn't know. I, I would say that that this would be a point in their favor as they're basically, you know, the the fact that this vulnerability was uh, kind of conveyed in the way that it was and the way that it was kind of distributed publicly um, directly resulted in a botnet. So what, what, what do you say to that line of, of, of the reasoning? So internal blue was developed by the NSA uh, and it got leaked by shadow brokers. Oh, ah, yeah. Oh, okay. that's spicy. <laughs> that's very spicy. <laughs> wow, it is. It is. It is early for that level of spice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, so let me let me say what I was gonna say, and then we'll go back to that. I was gonna say, you know, in an ideal world, the good guys would find the vulnerability first, and then work with a, a whoever through a responsible disclosure to see the vulnerability patched, but that clearly did not happen here with NSA. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I yeah. totally forgot about that. Wow. <clears throat> I did too. Yeah, my, Microsoft blamed the NSA. They're like, this is your fault because you didn't tell us of the vulnerability, right? They didn't practice what Microsoft thought was ethical, uh, responsible disclosure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the NSA is like, LOL, we have countries to destroy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. That's the CIA. Uh, they're like, LOL, we have nuclear reactors to destroy. And, um, you know, the, it was a subject where uh, Microsoft didn't blame shadow brokers. They blamed the NSA because they are the ones that found the vulnerability and they didn't release it or, or disclose it to Microsoft. Well, I mean, it sounds like uh, NSA had a weapon that they didn't keep a tight lid on. So that's so funny. I totally yeah. forgot about that. Yeah. So, so for context, for context, for listeners, basically NSA, you can assume has a suite of exploits that are otherwise unknown. Um, so something that we would call uh, zero day so exploits that will continue to work in the wild. And they had a whole toolkit that got leaked by a hacking group. How did how did Shadow Brokers get access to it? Was that ever discovered? I forget. Uh, I don't know. I, I I forget that part of it. I just remember Internal Blue was like from the NSA. Yeah, that's and, why it was such a big deal. And yeah, I, I don't know how Shadow Brokers got a hold of it. Might have been through some type of leak, but that's just me speculating, not really knowing... Uh, you know, the, the, the true nature behind it. Yep. So the, to, to add on to what Logan was saying about this, though, I mean, so in this situation, there's NSA, they have a hacking tool, it gets leaked and then it gets disseminated and then it gets weaponized. And folks that are taking the position of like, well, if you didn't look, then we wouldn't know. Um, can kind of point to this and say, like, look, it got leaked and then it was a big problem. And like, yes, that's that's valid. It did get leaked and it was a big problem. But the proper way to handle this when doing vulnerability research, if this is if this is your intent, is to work with the parties that are responsible for the uh, for the software or hardware that needs to get fixed, having it get fixed to some extent before disclosing it. And then going and going through the process that way. So by the time that the information makes it to some semblance of public, it's no longer weaponizable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the really the only way to improve security is to find flaws and ensure that they are fixed. And there's a lot of companies and, and entities that don't really want to deal with this, right? So, so for a lot of companies, security is not going to be one of their top focuses, 
And you know, that's that's say what you will. I know I know folks that work in the security industry don't like that. But at the end of the day, when it comes to financial incentives and kind of the the balance sheet, security in a lot of cases is not what they're focusing on. It's a cost center and you have to have a product first. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the, the common thing that is said is something to the effect of, well, you know, what are you going to secure if you don't have a business, right? So there has to be some interplay between uh, pro- product and security. So in a lot of cases, companies are, are not going to want to have to deal with these security problems unless it is really like kind of put to them to say, hey, look, we're going to go public with this information, but we want to work with you to make sure that this is fixed before we do. Um, this is one of the ways that you can really hold companies like that accountable to make sure that they are not directly resulting in the disclosure of sensitive information about their customers, PII, uh, you know, potential like vulnerability situations with their customers, things like that. Because there's, yeah, at least in in my experience with with responsible disclosure, um, and I think Drew, you had said that your your preferred nomenclature for it is coordinated disclosure. Um, that I that, also like coordinated. Yeah. A lot of the a lot of the organizations that that I have spoken with were not really in a position where they were. Oh yeah, cool. Let's let's fix this. They were really dragging their dragging their feet. So uh, vulnerability research really does help move the needle when it comes to, especially for large scale companies that kind of distribute whether it's hardware or software. But they're kind of one of those entities that makes it into your life without your consent, right? Like you have to use their stuff. So for instance, like. The gateways. The, dude, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I said Oracle. Oracle, Oracle. There we go. Yeah, Oracle, um, your ISP, right? So you, you probably get to choose from like one or two internet service providers depending on where you live uh, in the United States. Um, you know, companies like this where it's like you have to do business with them. So security is is even lower on the priority list. Um, it, it, it's a way to at least kind of better protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And the the last thing that I want to mention with respect to kind of the ethical position behind vulnerability research, and this is interesting because it was recently in the news due to a Supreme Court decision, is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So when you're doing vulnerability research, uh, depending on the scope of what you're doing, this is the law that you are most likely going to run afoul of. and. You know, I'm I'm very much not a legal expert, but my understanding of the problem with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is that the definitions contained within it are overly broad, and the the act effectively says something along the lines of, if you force a computer to run a command that you are not authorized for it to do or to to, to cause it to do, then you have violated this law. It's a federal level law. It's a felony. Um, it's a felony if you uh, if you run afoul of it, and you, you can you can see that with that sort of with that sort of vague wording, that you know the fact of the matter is you know like like Drew brought up earlier, this is one of those things where you're probably in violation of this law fairly regularly, or at least it could be argued to success in a court that you have violated this law. Um, and so it's really just a question of, is there an entity with deep enough pockets and a big enough grudge that wants to come after you? Because if they do, then this is going to be a really uh, good weapon for them to do so. So this is this is a big concern when it comes to vulnerability research. And one of the ways that we can address that is with bug bounties. Um, but just just generally speaking, when thinking about the ethical position behind vulnerability research, one of the things to keep in mind is there is this law out there that is quite draconian, that is very easily to fall afoul of. Um, and and historically, it has been used uh, very punitively, let's say. The uh, the example I think of that is with Aaron Swartz. Yep. Yeah, who mm-hmm. downloaded a bunch of academic articles and uh, he was prosecuted under the CFAA. And and let's let's finish that story to its end. Uh, this is this is one of the wasn't one of the original founders of Reddit. He was. He was. Yeah. yeah one of the original founders of Reddit. Uh, he's on he's on campus at MIT and uh, public universities and I guess some private ones as well that do research. They typically will get a license to this entity called JSTOR. 
And what JSTOR is, is kind of like a clearinghouse of research papers. Typically, if you're just, you know, Joe Schmo walking down the street and you want access to a research paper, you could go to JSTOR and pay for it. Um, also, pro tip, you can go directly to the researchers and ask them for a copy and they will give you one for free. Or you can go to JSTOR and pay for it. Uh, but but big academic research institutes don't want their researchers to have to pay for all these things. So they usually get a license and that license is typically applied to the campus. So it basically, if your computer is on campus, you can access JSTOR um, and, and get all the, the academic research documents that you need. And so... Aaron Schwartz didn't really like that you had to pay for this twice because, again, these are public research institutes, which are funded by taxpayer dollars. So you're already paying for this research once as an American taxpayer. And his position was, okay, well, if you're already paying for it once, like you've already paid for it. So he wrote some software uh, that was downloading all these papers and he left left it running on a laptop in a locker, if I remember correctly, on campus and he got caught. And, uh, you know, look, this guy was downloading public research papers with the intent to disseminate it. Take whatever position you want on that. I I think, again, there's arguments for both sides. Uh, but the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is what was used to prosecute him. And uh, I think it was like they were going to throw him in prison for 63 years. A very long time. Yeah, it was. It was. It was like a near life sentence, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So um, he took his own life, and that's how that story ended. Yeah, and so that's yeah. that's the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in a nutshell. We have to remember the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act was a law written by a congressman whose son was a was a lobbyist for AT and T, who then also became a lobbyist after he left being a federal elected official. Right. For AT&T. The law was written by AT&T because AT&T was getting sick of hackers and they wanted something to just go after hackers. Right. It is it is a perfect example of corporations writing a law to protect themselves. And that's why it is so overreaching. Mm. Right. There there are uh, there were many discussions at the time, which kind of pointed out like, hey, this law is kind of crazy. And, you know, the first time it was introduced into Congress, uh, it didn't go anywhere, right? It had to be reintroduced. But it, it is just crazy to see that it's still around. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I wrote my undergrad thesis on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and the absurdity behind it uh, with with how it was written what it actually means, you know, what is under it. I guarantee you some point, if you have used a computer in the last 10 years, you have broken one of the, you know, uh, one of the parts of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in your lifetime. It is that that is how overreaching it is. Right. What is a protected system? Quite a lot. Like a lot of systems fall underneath that. And it is a frustrating piece of law, which is, uh, you know, why part of the reason why some people are fine with selling uh, exploits because Mm -hmm. corporate is just going to write laws for Congress anyway. So why not just profit from from their poor coding practices. Drew, spend that was, less money on lobbyists, spend more money on security, right? Drew, that was a point that I was wanting to make as well. Um, well-intentioned vulnerability researchers, they're really walking on like a, yes. a tightrope. Um, because you have companies who don't always have incentives to take care of their customers. They'll just externalize the costs of, say, leaking your personal information mm-hmm. and these uh, researchers may, you know, they may really just be well-intentioned and they want to um, make these customers aware and fix the problem. Uh, can you guys imagine if engineering was run this way where these flaws exist irrespective of whether or not people are aware of them, but companies take the stance of, well, we just won't look and it'll be fine. And then you, 
And you have these researchers who, when they disclose to the company, they may be they may get hit with the CFAA. Mm-hmm. So, like, why on earth would you do that? Yep, yep. I think that's <laughs> yeah. a that's a big argument in favor of actual exploit sales, and I, I'm sure it's one of the things that drives exploit sales. Is yeah, you can go, you can do your discovery, have the best intentions, go to a company, be like, I want to work with you, I want to make sure that like this gets pit. Uh, patched before I, I go public with it, anything like that. And you could very well immediately be on the receiving end of uh, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, despite the fact that you are well-intentioned. Now, to, to be fair, it is really difficult to determine in, uh, intention, especially as somebody that has been on the other side of like receiving vulnerability reports. There are plenty of people that seem benign that are malevolent and plenty of people that, se- that are malevolent that seem benign. And so it goes in both directions. That's but true. You are you are absolutely at the behest of the company at that point, um, especially if they have deep enough pockets. Uh, but so all, all that being said, that I think that that segues nicely into the next thing that we're going to talk about here, which is bug bounties. Bug bounties are one of the kind of protective shields that we have against the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And the the way that a bug bounty works is a company will say uh, publicly like, hey, hey, guys uh, and girls, go ahead and hack us, right? Like, like, here's what's in scope. Here's what you're allowed to touch. Here's what you shouldn't touch. Here's the ways in which you can test us. Like a very common thing is like, please don't DDoS us. Please don't deny service to our customers. Um, you know, so, so here's here's the ground rules for how to do vulnerability research on our services. And then it's also paired with, and when you find anything, here is how to tell us, here's the responsible way to disclose to us, and here's how we will compensate you. And so that's nice on its face, but the shield part of that that I'm talking about with respect to the CFAA is when a company says, here's my bug bounty, then that is kind of a recognition that it's like, look, we we accept that you're doing this so long as you're playing by the rules. Here's the rules that we specify. And so long as you operate within these rules, the likelihood that you are going to run afoul of, uh, of them in a way that they're going to want to prosecute, with the, prosecute you with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is, uh, is greatly diminished, right? So, so a bug bounty program is a way for a company to express to vulnerability researchers Hey, it's okay if you if you come look at our services. And this is another part that you have to be careful about when you're joining these bug bounties. There, there are two things that you have to be careful about. Uh, one, if you have skill, uh, make sure you're not participating in open bug bounties. Participate in closed bug bounties because they pay more. And the second part is be careful of the agreements which you sign when you join these bug bounties. If you find something absolutely devastating and you're like wow this is a million dollar vulnerability it has now became a twenty thousand dollar vulnerability for you (laughs) so (laughs) just just remember that part right and remember the other part bug bounties are a great way to gain exposure if you don't have a ton of experience in the industry don't know what it's like to be on a pen test Sign up for a company that does a bug bounty. You'll learn exactly what it's like to be on a pen test, right? Uh, There are a lot of great features of bug bounties. Now, I've disagreed with bug bounties before in the past. Um, I see their usefulness, but I also see their one of the downfalls is that they're kind. They're they're they are trying to. Well, there's two major downfalls, I guess I should say. One is uh, the the vulnerabilities that you find aren't going to be paid out like you hear on the news, right? Someone got a million dollars for this vulnerability or $200,000 or something like that. Is that like right? five doge? Five doge? <laughs> <laughs> what is that, like $25 now? Uh, no. Um, it is... Uh, you know, that they'll go and if a bug bounty, well, this is the other point. If a bug bounty does pay, because there are some that don't, which really confuses me and don't ever participate in bug bounties that don't pay. But with when it comes to bug bounties, uh, you can make a lot of money. You're going to make a lot less money 
than if you were to sell those vulnerabilities to some type of exploit broker. But then again, if you're just finding things like cross-site vulnerabilities or, uh, you know, it's some type of domain transfer type stuff, that is not going to be sold to an exploit broker necessarily. So it's good to sell those to bug bounties. Just be careful when looking at your contracts with bug bounties. Now, the other part with bug bounties uh, is going with closed ones. And sometimes you have to participate to open ones to be invited to the closed ones. But the closed ones is where you can make a lot of money. And if a vulnerability, uh, if, a, if a bug bounty system or program is not well managed, you can make tons of money off of the dumbest vulnerabilities. Uh, one very large, uh, you know, remote meeting company uh, has a less than ideal bug bounty program and they have paid out millions of dollars because they didn't manage their bug bounty program correctly for one stupid vulnerability that was like propagated a, a, a like a hundred thousand times on their particular uh, network so you know you can exploit that if you find a bug bounty program that's not well managed you can definitely exploit it and get hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars because they don't know how to manage their product or, or manage the bug bounty. But most most companies that are having bug bounties are doing it correctly and they're managing it well. So just be careful. And like I said, they're not going to pay as much. That um, does get you around the CFAA. A lot of them have limited scope. So if you're looking at like AT&T, for example, I'm going to bash on AT&T. <laughs> Go for it. Man, feels like feels like... 2010, 2011, and I would just <laughs> bash on them all the time. Uh, AT&T's bug bounty program, you're like, man, I got all these vulnerabilities on your cell network. Their bug bounty program's like, look at our consumer-facing website. And it's just like, right, but what about your cell network? Like, how much do those bug bounties pay? And it's like, that's not part of our bug bounty program. It's like, all right. Tell the government it is. Um, <laughs> but... So, so remember that just because you found some cool vulnerability in their hardware or you found some cool vulnerability in their application uh, on, you know, your Android phone or something like that doesn't mean that that vulnerability is in their bug bounty and be very careful when you like start submitting bugs that aren't covered in their bug bounty, right? Because the protections that the bug bounty gives you against the CFAA because you're giving permission to look into these quickly fade away if you're looking into items which are considered out of scope. Yeah, it's a gradient. They aren't always good for the vulnerability researchers. They aren't always optimal for the company, but I think they are pretty much always a value add. Yeah, I'd say a well-managed bug bounty program, like one that actually you pay attention to and one that has reasonable payouts and one that has good communications, you know, look that... As with everything, there's pros and cons, but I think that that, yeah, I, I agree. That should be in the um, suite of security kind of capabilities for, for responsible companies. Mm -hmm. And that, that dovetails nicely with kind of our next topic here, which is, you know, I, you can call it responsible disclosure. You can call it coordinated disclosure, uh, but it's, it's, you know, the process of disclosing vulnerabilities to uh, an entity uh, with the intent that you're going to go public with these with these vulnerabilities once that has actually been fixed. So, uh, what, what, how do y'all how do y'all feel about uh, responsible disclosure? Um, I don't like it. Sucks. I mean, <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> it can suck. Yeah. I also <laughs> like to call it coordinated disclosure. I haven't had a lot of good experiences. And and I would I would also I, I think the way that this is distinct from bug bounties is like. In the case where there is a bug bounty, your disclosure through the bug bounty program, I don't think I would call it responsible or coordinated disclosure. This is referring to the case where you have found something and the entity that is responsible for fixing that problem does not have a bug bounty program, but you still want to make sure that it is addressed before, before you disseminate the information. So you're going to them and working with them to uh, kind of make sure that those changes are made before uh, before the information is shared uh, so so that that's that's what kind of distinguishes responsible disclosure from bug bounties for me and yeah it's I haven't been 
privy to it too many times, but the times that I have, it has been rough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you want to know what it's like to get a cease and desist by a company. <laughs> that's a great way to a get quick one. Way. Submit, <laughs> submit, submit their bugs to them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. It's, it, it's well-intentioned. Right. It and, is. And I can I can see why it's so poorly received on the side of, of the company because they, they they probably don't care. They probably don't care. And they, they, they have their existing product timelines. They have the existing goals that they want to hit. And all of a sudden, they're kind of like just completely caught off guard with this thing that is going to dis- potentially disrupt those timelines. And that puts a lot of people in in bad positions, right? Yeah, it can absolutely jeopardize the company. It's one of those things where if the company does not have an, a good existing security posture, it can be very alarming, which and when you frame it that way, their responses make a lot of sense. Mhm. Yeah, so it's it's a bit of a I don't even know if I would call this a mixed bag or just like a really bad bag or I don't even I don't think the metaphor actually fits, but it's Responsible disclosure is one of those things that uh, if you have a good experience with it, that is absolutely uh, a rarity. I I have a, a short story. So I've had um, a, a couple responsible disclosure, coordinated disclosure experiences. And most of them, I believe I did a pretty good job of acting responsibly to the companies and they did not appreciate the research. So that's one potential sad outcome. But on the flip side, there was one vulnerability I was working on and I accidentally in the course of um, vetting the vulnerability, I accidentally um, hacked a couple computers unintentionally. (laughs) (laughs) So then I contacted the company and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. This was not intentional. I know I messed up. And they were like, oh, it's cool, man. We see you were trying. So that that's an example where <laughs> I cool. did everything wrong and it went well. So, yeah, because they probably had a mature security program. Yeah, right. They did. And they, they did. weren't running with their heads off. Their CISO actually knew what vulnerability disclosure is and didn't freak out, which is what I find a lot of times upper management is the problem with it. Um, a lot of CISOs and a lot of CSOs They'll, they'll try to sound hip at their little conferences when it comes to, uh, you know, oh, we, we are accepting of vulnerability research. But then behind closed doors, what they really say is we absolutely hate vulnerability researchers, right? Mm-hmm. And Oracle, again, I'm going to pick on Oracle because, man, 2015 was a bad year for Oracle. Their CSO, and you can look up who that is if you want to. We won't blast them on, uh, on our podcast, but uh, by name. Uh, they were like, hey, security researchers, don't look at our product. We look at our own product. And that received such negative attention that Oracle took down her blog post. And I remember, oh, I remember that. (laughs) That's not what we believe. Sorry, people. Uh, We didn't mean to make you angry. And then like Oracle, it was was hilarious. So like on the back end side, when it comes to non-responsible disclosure, um, but uh, responsible exploit cells. Uh, there was an influx of like Oracle exploits that were being sold. It was mm-hmm. hilarious to see that on the back end side. It was just like, oh, Oracle exploits are going for, you know, $20,000. And then it became there were so many. It's like Oracle exploits are like dime a dozen right now. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so, so Oracle may not know. That, that that happened. But let me tell you, there were a plethora of people making money off of Oracle's poor security in 2015 because of that one blog post. Things that people weren't even looking into were starting to be looked into because of a company's mismanagement and executive levels mismanagement of how to interface with the security community. And a lot of companies are getting better with this. And Oracle, I don't know if get, is getting better with it. Uh, if that CSO is no longer around, they probably are. If 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 they are still around, they're probably not. Um, to be blunt, but with this, if you um, you know if you see a, a lot of the failures come down from the top down, right? The engineers they get it, right? The the security engineers, the security analysts, stuff like that, like they're going to be the ones that have to fix the problem. 
and the engineering team is going to have to fix the problem, but they understand it, right? They're like, okay, yeah, they found a product, a problem in our product. Okay, let's deal with this. Usually what happens is when this item, when a uh, researcher who is trying to do responsible disclosure to a company puts something to the company and they're like, hey, uh, I found this vulnerability, you know, and I just wanted you guys to let you know about it. And, uh, you know, um, uh, let me know if you need any information to help fix it. It's when upper management doesn't understand the value that they just got for free. And they mishandled the situations, which happens more times than not, unfortunately, which is why I myself am not always the biggest fan of a responsible disclosure. And that is because companies will get very vicious against you, the researcher. So why put myself through that? Why put my family through that? Yeah, I just sell it. I'd say I'd say that with the prevalence of bug bounties now, you know, a few years ago, it was not the case. But with the prevalence and ease of of setting bug bounties up now, I'd say your best bet for disclosure is go with companies that have uh, have bug bounties because they're they're at least telling you they're signaling ahead of time that it's like, hey, guys, it's okay. Like we're 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 into this. Um, So there's one more one more kind of category of motivations for vulnerability research that I want to touch on before we get to Drew's favorite of exploit sales. Uh, and that is research publication. So brought it up briefly before. And, and honestly, it's, it's, the, it's the motivating factor behind a lot of the work that I've done with Logan is research publication. Um, you know, in this industry, there's so much of the software, so much of the knowledge that we uh, have and use on, on a regular basis comes for free because there's so many people that came before us that did great research, that shared great knowledge, uh, that has that bootstrapped everything uh, that that we kind of hold dear. So there's a big part of security culture that is like, hey, y'all gave me so much. I want to take that and run with it and provide some back. I want to pay it forward. And, and so that's part of the ethos that kind of runs through the community is go do cool stuff, write cool software, give it back for free because the majority of software you're using and the majority of knowledge that you're using was given to you for free. Um, so that that is absolutely a big motivating factor for for a lot of the research that's done is whether or not you're going to write like a blog post or whether you're going to present it at a conference, whether or not you're going to like write some software around it. Uh, these are all things that folks will kind of carry with them in terms of ways that they distinguish themselves in the industry. And that is, you know, that that is a very common, common underlying current for what is motivating folks to actually do vulnerability research. Um, it, it feels good seeing other people continue on research that you contributed back. Totally. It's very neat. Yep. 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 And even if you are like one of the hardcore, like sell everything, you know, type of people, remember that you started out learning from others who didn't sell those exploits, but actually presented it as a talk at a conference. Mm-hmm. And everything that you find is not worth selling. So there's definitely things that you can talk about that is never going to be sold, never going to be touched, never going to be released. So I think that I, I strongly believe that individuals should spend some time giving a few talks about some products. Uh, even if it's just pol- preliminary research or you can't release all the research. Um, I had some situations where I couldn't release all the research, but I was able to release some of the research. Uh, and, uh, you know, I got approval from the company I worked for. I got approval from the DOD client I was doing work with at the time. And even though I couldn't release everything and there are some times where people would ask questions, I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. We should look into that. And it's like, we already have the answer for it, uh, <laughs> but, I can't, but I can't tell you it. <laughs> um, uh, you should try to make an effort to at least publish some of your research, not just to grow your own standing in the community, but to allow others who might have an interest in the subject. Uh, to gain a different perspective and learn from you. All right, Drew, that puts us uh, puts it us puts us at our last topic here, which I know you have some strong opinions on. Tell us about exploit sales. Exploit sales is the best thing that has happened to the security industry since. <laughs> Keep it spicy, know. Drew. 
I know. <laughs> no. So exploit cells, um, but let's talk about the origin of exploit cells, right? Why are you allowed to sell exploits? And the, the basic answer is because code is speech. And the EFF, though the EFF would prefer that you don't sell exploits, the best thing about the EFS, actually one of the best things, there are many great things about the EFF, um, is, and I'm not saying that they don't have their faults. I'm saying they do a lot of things correct. Uh, but, but one of the items that I love about the EFF, and it really shows their dedication, is they don't necessarily endorse the sale of exploits, but by Doshgarn, they will fight for your right to sell exploits. And they've, uh, you know, I, I've been a part of panels where there are EFF people there. I've, I've asked EFF lawyers, um, both publicly and, uh, you know, privately uh, about this, and they are consistent. And what I mean by that is they will fight for your right to sell exploit because they legitimately believe or at one time, I guess I should say, some would argue maybe they don't hold this opinion, but I would still say the majority of EFF lawyers hold this opinion. Code is speech. And what that means here in America, anyway, uh, we have this thing called the First Amendment. And the First Amendment allows for many, many things, but one of them is the ability for uh, free speech. And since your code is speech, the government can't limit your capability of producing such code. Now, there are other laws that can kind of interfere with that down the road, but we won't get into that uh, topic. Maybe that will be a, a podcast topic when we invite, invite a EFF lawyer on. Um, but code is speech allows us the ability here in America anyway to create code and distribute it how we see fit without having to worry about government interference. Now, with this, the, the, the reason why I spent so much time on that is to talk about the premise of your creation and your research has value. And sometimes bug bounties don't capture the value that, that your particular research represents. But if you can weaponize your research into a way that is useful to be used for by a, you know, uh, by the intelligence community or by the military, you can sell it for gainful profits. And I am for this for a few different reasons. And one of the biggest reasons is because of companies' mishandling of vulnerability research and responsible disclosure done by well-intentioned people. I may not be so militant on exploit cells if it was companies handled their interfacing with researchers better. But since they don't, and since they like to hand out cease and desist letters instead of hand out, you know, uh, uh, open invitations to speak more about this particular vulnerability and working together, I'm for exploit sales. Because now you get the benefit of your work. You don't have to put your family through legal trouble. That is total BS in my opinion. Um, and a lot of times it's used just as a scare tactic. And you get to continue doing what you love, which is finding other exploits and other products. So I'm very much for exploit sales. Now, companies are like, oh, my gosh, how do we stop researchers from doing exploit sales? <laughs> and uh, that's my that's my corporate America executive sound right there. <laughs> You're really so, consistent on that. I know executives, if you... Uh, if, if you ever speak to me, that's how you sound in my head. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> that's my that's my scared company that doesn't that doesn't have a mature security program uh, and doesn't G have strong me, leadership. Sound. Give me the strong leadership and great maturity program uh, executive voice. Uh, all right. Thank you for the vulnerability research. <laughs> Here is $5,000. <laughs> okay, so they're all Austrian. Got it. <laughs> all right. Um, so, so with that, though, uh, what we have is uh, companies that, uh, you know, you don't have to deal with them anymore. And 
it is a relief for you and you don't have to worry about, you know, going, getting in trouble, going to jail, facing legal troubles for something that shouldn't be illegal in the first place. Uh, but companies just don't like other vulnerability researchers finding things in their product, right? It's their baby. So, again, I probably wouldn't be so militant for exploit sales uh, if if companies had a better, you know, reputation as a whole when it came to dealing with as the, the real good people, the people who are there who are trying to report bugs to you literally for free, even before bug bounties were a thing. And, uh, you know, companies really dropped the ball on that. And that's this is why I am quite militant when it comes to exploit sales. It's a hot take. <laughs> so, <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. And, and it's a very polarizing take. It is. But yeah. uh, also uh, to go back to the if you uh, companies that are worried about, uh, uh, you know, having people find exploits in their products and then selling them. You want to know how you fix that? You, you give them very expensive contracts. And then you make them sign an NDA and all your problems go away, right? Mm -hmm. All my clients, like I'm not selling exploits of theirs. If I find something of theirs, even when I'm not on Pentas, I'm telling them that. Yep. Right? Yep. So so all my clients, I cannot find exploits in and sell it to, you know, the U.S. government or some other, uh, you know, intelligence agency um, that works for the U.S. or something like that, Right. And that is a hard line that I have. There are some great exploits that would have gained more money for me individually uh, than the contract that the company signed. Uh, but, you know, they became a client. They signed the product. Now, now I'm obligated to, to disclose this item for them and uh, not sell it. So... It uh, th that's how you really, if you really want to take the crafty way on stopping exploit sales against your products for vulnerability researchers, try to hire them as consultants. Yeah. So if you're worried about exploit sales, just hire uh, Drew. Hire Drew. Is it, yeah, exactly. Then <laughs> <laughs> all your Not what I was going. saying, but hey, I'll, I'll uh, my my business development uh, you know, guy will appreciate it. <laughs> but that's not what I was going with that, Drew. Uh, the way you're describing the incentives of a vulnerability researcher and selling the vulns reminds me of online piracy for movies. So um, I pay for all of my movies online. I even purchased WinRAR recently because I'm, I'm doing my best. Man. And, uh, you know, I was using HBO recently and the app's not great. And it is easier for me to just pirate their content. And that's not a great position to be in as a company. And I think it's up to the company to improve that. The three takeaways for today's episode are, one, vulnerability research is a common practice in the InfoSec industry. Two, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act shaped a lot of the vulnerability research ecosystem. And three, exploit sales is a particularly controversial topic with compelling arguments to be made on all sides. While we have our own opinions on the ethics of vulnerability research and how it should be handled responsibly, we don't have the moral authority to say which of these views is best. Like it or hate it though, vulnerability research isn't going away. It results in some good, it results in some evil, and it's one of the aspects of the information security world that we'll continue to have to live with. Alright, let's just sit. Alright, and that is our last episode of our second season. So, woohoo! Um, That's awesome. Yeah, thank you to all of our listeners for sticking with us. We hope that this season was a bit improved over the first, and we're going to be gone for a few extra weeks uh, as, as a bit of a break between seasons, so we'll be back in four weeks, um, and we'll be back with hopefully some more improvements, some more interviews, might even get some video out there. Uh, but but yeah, we're, we're taking time between seasons to kind of review what we did and, and figure out how we can we can be better so hopefully if, if you enjoyed us in, in the first two seasons hopefully the third will be our best yet thanks for joining us for this episode of security explained if you enjoyed listening we'd love to hear from you we're always looking for new topics that our audience finds interesting and you might be able to pick our next show feel free to reach out via social media or give us a rating on your listening platform to let us know how we're doing you can find us on the web at securityexplained.fm or on Twitter at SecExplained. 
Thanks again, and until next time, stay safe. Thank you.